Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. Feeling rooted in something and having that comfort and trust with people, I think it, it, it's a very, very strong thing and it's the very essence of society. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something I feel like I've, I've always felt outside of. Well, you know, that makes school, two of us. <laughs> I was never in the cliques. I was yeah, always sort of, nah, I, mean, I was there, I was present, I was welcome. It, it's not like I was ostracized. I don't want to give this false impression of like poor little me. I was such a, you know, but I was just always like, I I just always saw it as a facade, as just a charade. Yeah. And so I was always looking through everything, which you can't be a part of anything if you're looking through it. You yeah. just can't. You have to you have to embrace it fully and completely. You have to believe it. You have to have it be full and substantial and real in order to really and become a part of it. And because I was always sort of seeing like the veils that could be pulled aside, yeah. you know, then it was like, how can I buy into this? And therefore, I will never really be a part of yeah. it. Yeah, well, what you're saying really, really speaks to me. And uh, another way of uh, kind of expressing that is, you know, the classic Groucho Marx saying, you know, um, I'd never be, I'd never join any club that would want to have me as a member. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a brilliant saying because my dad's a natural joiner. He's always loved clubs and societies, whether that was sports when he was growing up, whether it's music when he couldn't play sports anymore. He played in big bands and orchestras and he loved joining stuff. I've always yeah. hated joining stuff. I, I yeah. hate being in things in clubs and societies. And and if I ever stood on stage, it was as somebody who was not in the chorus, but you know, gave an address or something like that. You know, the idea of being in a group of people in a team and a lot of certainly the lot of learning that I had when I was growing up was very team based. Well, you want to be part of the team so you can achieve X, Y, and Z. I remember thinking at the age of ten, I don't want to be part of a fucking team. No thanks. <laughs> That's not for me. And, and it's that thing, oh, if, you, yeah. if, if you're looking at something and analysing it all the time, you can't be in the middle of it and part of it. And you've got to make your choice, right? Yeah, I think that's why I was inherently always a writer, because yeah. I was always feeling like oh. I was standing on the outside looking in. And I was always analysing and assessing and trying to break it down, dissect, understand get it to its most diluted pieces so that it was the most digestible in a way that was like, I will understand the the, the core of all of this and what is really going on. And I, I think it's really, it's really interesting because it actually really harkens to like, that was for me, like early religion was essentially science, right? Yeah. Science was yeah. man trying to get to the bottom of God. Like, where is God? What is God? How do we find God between the molecules? Essentially, right? Like that was kind of the, the motivation for early science. And uh, and you and I both have that stand outside the crowd and look in and observe. Um, and, and it seems on the outset that we're looking for two completely different things. But I think in our book that we read this week, Conversations with God, the biggest question that kept coming up for me, and I've been dying to get on this call with you to talk to you about it, was, are we really looking for two different things or do we just give it different names? Yeah. Because really, this book is like breaking down the notion of what is God? And yet it uses the very word G-O-D in the title. Like it's not yeah. just there in the book. It's like in the title, it says God. And immediately as I was, you know, reading it, because of course now I'm reading kind of with like, you're there with me, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's right not me anymore. It's like, you're there with me. And I found myself just thinking, I wonder if Andrew 
like what his concept of God, like what is God? Like yeah. that word could be defined. It's it's so limited, right? And yet it's so big and it can be defined in a bajillion different ways. So um, I'm just diving right in. <laughs> so I, I'm so glad you've gone to this point, but because it, it really speaks to something. We're in complete harmony on this. So given the fact that we're thousands of miles away, it's so funny event you've started with that because it speaks right to the heart of something I wanted to talk about. But before I speak about that, I'll just say that yeah. this is Hard Degree presenting yes. Evangelina Lee's Library of the Soul. I'm Andrew Sumner. I'm here with my mate Evangeline Brains Lily, all the way on the other side of the world from where I am now. And uh, and this week, uh, we're talking about the book Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And um, and as to your question, you know, what is, what is my concept of God? Wait. Uh, before you say that, you yes. just said brains, and it made me realize I don't. Yeah, but your specs on. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. <laughs> I thought maybe. I, I thought. I thought maybe because you're wearing that incredibly uh, classy top, that maybe you thought maybe 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 the brains glasses aren't working <laughs> with this. You know what? I I forget to wear them all the time because yeah. it's still so new to me. Yeah. And then by the end of like reading a book, I'm like, oh, why do I have a headache? You know, and it's yeah. I have wearing them. Hang on, two seconds. This is this is this is brains assembly in real time. Yeah, exactly. Yep, they're right here. Perfect. I didn't have to go far. All right. Yes, All right. there we go. The full brains. <laughs> um, in Thunderbirds, they have a they have a catchphrase they use all the time, uh, which is um, FAB. Yeah, so that was their affirmation signal for because it's all about different like a superpowered craft. And their affirmation signal is FAB, uh, and it's only an acronym for the the sixties uh, kaleidoscopic word yeah. fab. That was it. There was so has no meaning beyond that. Yeah, so fab, <laughs> absolutely so fab, fab gear as they used to say in Liverpool. So uh, yeah. yeah, no, that's you've really delivered it now, and it does oh, work with the fab. top as well. It's, okay. it's it's totally working. <laughs> I feel so, like I feel like I'm about to say what, what I was about to say, but now under the the, the death glare of the brain's glasses, in front of which really you can only inspired. speak the truth. Yes, whatever you say, it better be inspired. Better be, it better be good. Out. It better be good. The 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 thing for me, my, my conception of God is I, I I've always looked at God as a kind of a man-made, a human-made construct. Yeah, in terms of how it, how God is is kind of explained um, to people and has been explained to human society, and I think the concept of of God for me is is that I I don't look in terms of God of of God in terms of God is something can be any way individualized. So you know the the, the classic um, the classic. Uh, uh, what am I looking for? Cliche it is, you know, the guy in the in the, in the robe with the long the long white beard and the long long white hair and all that kind of stuff. But that's only one facet of what God is to people. Uh, you know, I think if, if I'm not even sure if I would look at things in terms of of there is God a a, a figure or a central source of the grand design. My personal view is that is that the the view the universe is. Is far more complex than that, and and uh, it is complex to the point where it's abs- it's completely beyond the ability of human beings to actually see what that grand design is, and we're never going to find an answer, no matter how many and no matter that we may all in our own ways dedicate our lives to searching. The reason why it ring always rings true to me that it's actually the journey that's important. Is the journey is all you're going to get. Because I just don't think there's you get away from the door in the movie palace at the end and suddenly think, man, that was it. Or, you know, as you go towards the light, suddenly all of life's mysteries are revealed to you. I think it's such a complex and multi-leveled and four-dimensional mystery that I just don't think we are capable of seeing it. So therefore, what sits at the heart of that is absolutely fascinating, but I do not think it's any kind of directive being or presence. 
I just don't think that's what it is. And I'm I'm much more interested in a kind of, I, I never use the term God. If anything, if I ever say, well, if, if something happens to a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine, you know, in a place where you might go, well, that's God's design for you. I would never think of saying that in a million years. I might go, you know, well, you know, the universe has conspired for these events to take place to with you, right? And that is definitely the way I look at it. And that's what speaks to me about, say, a religion like Shinto, you know, which, which doesn't really, you know, have, um, you know, kind of a, a humanised figures in terms of, of those who are worshipped. And I can absolutely see why there are, there are human deities or deities elements of human physiognomy in them, of course, because that's about projection, right? But right. For, for me, I think that's, the whole game is about the universe. Well, I think it's about projection. And then I also think it's about um, um, giving us something we can wrap our head around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, what's the truth is something that we maybe cannot our head around 100 yeah um do you remember in the 90s there were those um auto stereogram images that oh, were like yeah. rage and they were just a kaleidoscope of a million tiny tiny little pictures and when put together and seen through a kind of blurred eye like if you did something really to your eye and the way you looked at the picture suddenly you saw a greater picture Yes. Yeah. Do you remember those? Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. I feel like that's a great metaphor for God. Yeah. Like that, all the goings on of the world, from the microscopic organisms to the ants to the larger, great geopolitical things going on with human beings to like the global things that go on with the weather. If you took all the pictures, all the snapshots, and you put them all together as a tapestry, right there is God. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, kind of what you. Yeah, yeah that, that that's kind of it, and also I think I think the uh, the ever presence of that of what you just said, um, I think I'm about to come up with what might be the most obscure and nonsensical God analogy I've ever heard anybody say. Maybe I'm wrong, but I tell you what it's like. It's like the presence of a greater design, shall we say, which is how I'm much more comfortable about talking about about god not that i've got a problem saying god but to me god is kind of a narrative construct so whenever i talk about god i'm immediately thinking about all the different ways i've seen god portrayed in books and movies many of which i love and um and when i was talking about the little world of don camillo stories right one of the things about god in those books is absolutely humanized you know as a person with a voice which is very relevant for the book we're going to talk about by the way and i want to get into that in a second but one of the ways i look at that universal design is is that hints of it a presence of it are always there in any image or or landscape or soundscape that you look at mm-hmm. or listen to but not there overtly in the centre of the image, just there on the corner of the screen. And it's like that scene in Rambo, where the the guard, the the the, the soldiers, the uh, the National Guardsmen, are looking for Rambo in the forest, you know, and they're being and he's picked them off one by one. There's only a hardcore of them left, but they all want to kill him at this point, and uh, they're using thermal imaging detectors to try and find him but they can't. And that's because he's basically stripped himself down and jumped into this freezing cold mud to lower his body temperature. And they're all jumping over a rise in the mud. And he suddenly at one point in the corner of the screen opens his eyes and you, and you, you, and his eyes are lit in a way that you instantly see him, but he's been there the whole time in the corner of the screen, watching these National Guardsmen. You realize, oh man, this guy, he's completely such a high level special forces guy. These guys don't stand a chance, right? But it's that, it's that whole thing of, you know, you look back on the image to five decades later and you notice something in the corner of it that you, can't quite understand why it's there or what it is but you perceive it in a different way and it's like when people used to see what now and again when you see supernatural images we go but where are these extra feet from in this image you, you know what i mean yeah. or or somebody's hiding under the bed and you look at the picture and in the corner you can see a pair of eyes under the slats of the bed it's that kind of thing if that's making that any sense it absolutely is it actually really speaks to exactly where I was at in my life when I first read these books which was now it would have been um just a little over about 15 years ago ish and um I was uh now I mean the last the last 
book we talked about, I was, um, you know, I was in this sort of lost space between high school and the rest of my life, right? What was going to happen. And at this point in my life, I have actually been cast on the show Lost. I've been working on the show for less than a year. And I have just, well, I'm, I'm in the midst of what, because I'm going through a divorce. And the divorce is like, as anyone knows who's gone through a divorce, you can't say I just got divorced because there's yeah. no such thing as a sort of point in time where it feels like now I'm divorced. It's just this very sticky process that carries on and carries on and carries on. And you just keep sloughing it away. It doesn't just go away the minute you sign papers or, you know, do what you're supposed to do legally. So I was in the midst of a divorce. And for me, divorce became a massive existential crisis because up to that point in my life, I had been very devoutly Christian. And when I sinned, it was always like, oops, my humanity got in the way and I did something wrong. Or it was like, you know, I swore like a sailor even back then, but I always was like, God doesn't give a shit about the words I use. Like, he just doesn't care. Like, I had a different sort of morality surrounding it than what I was taught at church. But this was the first time that I knew in my heart that there was a law, a, a, a div- divine law about this. And I chose, I premeditated to break that law. And I knew I was going against God's word and I did it anyway. And I couldn't make sense of that in within myself. And I and I every single time I prayed about it. And as I mentioned last time, you know, I've always as far back as I can remember, I've had a two-way communication with something else that is not me. Yeah. And I've always called it God. And um, and whenever I would pray the answer that came back was always just as clear as it had always been that that communication was clear and it was always the same, which is essentially, I don't, I'm not invested either way. Like you're not going to offend me or hurt me with this choice. It doesn't affect me and it doesn't affect this at all. And I was like, okay, but that's not what it says in this book. Yeah, that's right. Yes, in this book, and that's your official word. And I've been believing that very strongly for a long time. So if you're telling me that this is not the final word, if this is not right in this particular situation right now, that my entire faith is crumbling. My entire world is crumbling because I can't justify then that this is the holy and infallible word of God. And if it's not, then where does that leave me spiritually? Where does that leave me in my faith? So I was in a massive existential crisis that for me was um, very, very painful because I was so passionately devout and my relationship with God was the core and center of who I am and who I was. And so I was in a really, I mean, between the divorce, the existential crisis, and then also being launched into international fame overnight coming from like Hodunk Canada and like nothing, you know, no experience with anything like this before. Um, And knowing before I started, I would hate fame and having that confirmed very, 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 Strongly, very immediately that I was not, that was not a fun game for me. Um, I was in a mess. I was drinking a bottle of wine every night just to get to sleep. I was um, having moments that felt like I belong in an asylum. You know, I was mentally feeling very unhinged. And I was in a, another sort of dark night of the soul. I was I was really in a bad place. Um, I wanted to quit the job. I wanted to walk away from acting and never turn back. I had all of these um, you know physical things going on. Of course, whenever anything is amiss inside, I find it manifests physically in my physical body. Yeah. And um, and I had a girlfriend who had gone to Rwanda to do short term missions. And had fallen in love with a Rwandese man and had wanted to get married to him. And and she couldn't because they couldn't afford 
to, to make it work with visas and everything that had to happen between with the cross country thing, because they both were poor missionaries. And I remember vowing before I got the job on loss that if I ever came into money somehow that I would make this marriage happen. Cause I thought it was so wrong and so horrible that two people who were in love couldn't be together because of money. I just thought that was disgusting. And so I had agreed to financially support their marriage and um, they were going to get married in South Africa. And they said, wow. will you please be in the wedding? And I don't know if you remember last time we spoke, my dream had been to be a missionary in Africa. Right. Oh, I've yeah. never been to Africa before. And I was like, yes, I will, come, I will be there. And it was a dream come true for me to go to Africa. But I said, the deal is I will come and be in your wedding, even though like we weren't close friends. We barely knew each other, but I was like, I'll come and be in your wedding. If you'll take me and show me your work in Rwanda after the wedding. So I went to South Africa and then I went to Rwanda. And while I was in Rwanda, recentering, getting away from the crazy that my life had been for that year, this book had somehow come to me and I cracked it open and I started reading. I will never forget where I was. I will never forget the first time I read the words that hell is just a, a human creation, that the devil is just mythology, like all these notions that what you just said about in hindsight, you look back and it's like that thing that was in the corner of the picture that was always yeah. there. You always knew it but you just weren't looking at it or you just weren't recognizing what it really was. And it felt like every word in this book for me at that time in my life was exactly that. It was like the, you know, auto stereo um, gram where, where suddenly I figured out how to focus my eyes in the right way. Yes. And it was like things that I have always known that were always there just became crystallized and somebody put words to them and validated that the, they could be true. They could be real and that could be okay. And that became the beginning of rebuilding what was my sense of being able to have a faith. It's yeah. like, I don't have to just be faithless because now I no longer think that the Bible is, is like, it's something you can't touch, you know, but it, it's like, no, I could carry on having this beautiful relationship I had nurtured and it was just going to look real different than it had ever looked yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Where were you exactly when you, when you read the book for the first time? I was, so I was in this girlfriend. Um, she, <laughs> she had just gotten married. I only gave them two weeks alone for their little uh, yeah. honeymoon around the Cape, Cape area of South Africa. And then we went to their home and I was living, this is their first time living in their new home in Rwanda together. And there I am a house guest in their first yeah. two weeks or three weeks there. And I was in my bedroom in that house, their guest room. And I was laying belly down on the bed and the sounds are different, you know, were different in Rwanda than where I've been living. The feeling of the air was different. The, the whole atmosphere was completely different. And for me was utterly enchanting. I, I had fallen deeply in love with Rwanda the moment I got off the plane and also was able to recenter and find myself to be able to go back and do season two of Lost without losing my mind. <laughs> but I was on that bed, I was belly down, and, um, and, and I think that Mona might've been pittering around the house. And I remember feeling like a touch guilty because she was a missionary. She was very Christian. And here I was reading this book that at the time I didn't know this, but my sister told me later on preachers across America, across the world had been preaching from the pulpit that this was like the work of the devil, that this book was evil, that you should protect your children from it that it will, you know, ruin, ruin your faith, you know, and that it, yeah. it was a dangerous, evil book. And I, I, I didn't, ha I didn't know that that was happening, but I did know that she wouldn't agree with <laughs> what yeah. I was reading in that book and feeling a sort of inner amen to yeah. that. She would be horrified to know that this is where my heart was moving. Now, now that, that's, that's very interesting because what you mentioned there, do you remember last week when we were talking about the whole concept of, the Bible having been treated by 
for hundreds of years as an immortal document, right? Yes. That, that yes. consistently throughout, and I hadn't realised quite in the moment that what a what a what a preview of this conversation that that would be, but uh, but of course, you know, I, I I look at this stuff and I read it as, as somebody, you know, who who wouldn't you know wouldn't describe themselves wouldn't identify as a Christian, but this take on what Christianity is 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 much more powerful to me than that. You know that that unyielding immortal document around which there's a whole bunch of organisation and bureaucracy that has developed. The fact that essentially the message that that I I took from this book is that you know your relationship with God is a personal one, and and actually however it is administered, if it's working for you, that is the key. Yeah, rather than you have to listen to the way that you're told to do it, it's the way that speaks to you personally that is that is the key. And I've always felt instinctively, whatever your faith, whatever your belief is, that that's absolutely right. An approach that is completely valid. So, well, so do you know what I really loved? It's the whole concept of. And it's expressed very early on in book one uh, that the most common form of uh, of communication is through feeling, and feeling is the language yeah. of the soul. Now that yeah. feels exactly right to me. Yeah, and that and that the word is the lesser purveyor of truth. I liked that expression, yeah. right? Yeah. Words. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. that's why I found it really interesting that the word choice in the title is God. Because throughout the book, it talks about the I am. And I feel like we both would probably agree that's a, that's a great, accurate expression of God, right? It's just what is. Yeah. Like, it is the I am. And yet on the cover, they decided to use the word God, which I think is actually quite brilliant because it would probably be more accessible to more people because I think the majority of the population of the world believes in God. But I love that it says that words are the lesser purveyor of truth, because as my journey went on, one of the things I started to realize when I started to examine other faiths and other versions of spirituality and other versions of, you know, connection to this greater force or greater power or communal energy was that, you know, we have such limitation to express these things with language. And we have many, many languages in the world. So where two people might fight because one person says Allah and one person says God. And then you break it down and realize, but Allah is the Arabic word for God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's the same it's thing. It's the same fucking thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I and what you said about this book being that continuation. So I, I, gotta, I gotta put brains on now. Yeah. I, I thought it was amazing. I did a little bit of um, digging around in Acts because Acts is the book of the Bible. I used to be like, a super Bible nerd. Yeah. So I, I did a bit of digging around in Acts, which is when the church started to be moved by the Holy Spirit, which is feeling, right? It was like Jesus had died and gone and left behind the Holy Spirit to guide and to be the thing that actually like moved the church forward. And the the Pharisees, of course, the, the men who were in charge of the church and in charge of faith back then were trying to persecute and kill and, and eliminate these new Christians because what they were saying was heresy, right? It was all very uh, evil and wrong. And and it was, was it Paul? Who was it? I'd have to, hang on, let me look. You can, you can um, oh, it was, I think it was Stephen. Yeah, it was Stephen. Stephen ends up being trapped by the Pharisees and questioned. And he just absolutely gives them hell. And he says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down. This is from the Old Testament in the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will you put, where will my resting place be? Um, in other words, how can you limit God to one doctrine, one faith, one idea? The Holy Spirit moves. Um, and then he says, uh, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised <laughs> hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? 
<laughs> and meanwhile, 2000 years later, another person comes along and says, hey, I've also heard from God. Here's the new word from God. And once again, <laughs> you stiff-necked people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like they get so stuck. There's such a stiffness. There's such a stuck. And yet it's right there in the Bible. It says, don't get stuck. Don't stay in one idea or in one place, but like allow your feelings to guide you, allow the Holy Spirit to move. Yeah, I thought that was. But human beings have a a deep-seated attachment in all cultures to bureaucracy, Uh, and the problem, and because people are so comfortable getting into patterns, patterns of behaviour give for to bureaucracy, and bureaucracy lives on, you know, beyond generations. Whether that's in the workplace, there is in society, whatever. On the minute you start organising shit, the problem with it is that very human need and and and, uh, attraction towards bureaucracy just means that you get codification and you get all, all suddenly you got all these brick lines around you about what you can and can't do and as we've talked about before one of the one of the issues with um uh you know formal formal christianity you know catholicism protestantism whatever it is is essentially you're talking about a bunch of bureaucratic constructs right. that a bunch of dudes a thousand years ago in a very different society came up with, you know, and 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 actually, surely that the interesting thing about faith and belief is, you know, it, it has to be malleable and it has to be fluid uh, and it can't be, it can't be just contained by somebody's rules. That doesn't work. I actually think what, um, what uh, Neil Donald Walsh did with uh, either him or his editors, but including God in the cover on, on the title that's the kind of stealth bomb of you go and buy it because you're devout and you open up and it's like, holy fuck, this guy's telling me that I shouldn't be listening to holy people. I shouldn't be listening to rabbis. I shouldn't be listening to priests. I shouldn't be listening to vicars. It's or about I my personally. Or I should, if yeah. it aligns with my truth. If I want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I feel it and it's meaningful to me. Yes. And if it's not... Okay. Now take yeah. take a closer look at that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So when you got when you um when you got back, um, I guess you were going back to Hawaii to shoot uh, season two of Lost, right? Yeah. After you'd yeah. had that experience, how did it how did it then play out for you? You know, over the over that next phase of your life. Well, so this book, as you may have recognized, is three books. So similar yeah. to the final quest, it's two books. And this one is three books. And yeah. they're enormous. So I yeah. have, this is my version of the collection. And it's yeah, it's behemoth. You know, it's, it's enormous. And so I actually read the three books over the course of the next three seasons of Lost. So yeah. I, I think I finished the final book. Again, I remember where I was, what I was doing. I was on a road trip between uh, Vancouver and Los Angeles. And I'd gone up to that glacier lake in Washington. Oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's absolutely incredible aqua green blue like milky water up in the mountains and I was sitting up beside that lake when I finished the third book and it was a slog it was a lot to get through and I read it over those over those years and the whole time there was this like this bell ringing inside saying yes this is truth I am reading truth and then there was this wrestling with how do I turn that belief up here in my head into the kind of cellular belief that I have had about Christianity for 28 years. Like, how do I make that a part of me now? Because even though I I go, yes, I hear that. That's true. Everything about how I've organized my life, everything about how I see the world, everything about who I am is rooted in a different belief. And so changing like that, that becomes a great challenge. And I think, you know, when I read it this time, so I read it, I'm reading it again. I haven't read all three, obviously, but um, the thing that I ended up coming up against that really rubbed me this time, that was difficult. Whereas the first time, I think it was exactly what I needed at that moment was how incredibly cerebral it is. It's just yeah. this logical slog. I mean, the polar opposite of the vision, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> talk about that. 
the, the polar opposite of the of the Emily Bronte Wuthering Heights uh, yeah. emotional extremity of, yeah. of, of 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 the vision. And this is, I, I mean, I, I found it. I, I think my my issue with it is, on the one hand, it felt far more authentic than the vision did. I love the bombast of the vision, but it feels like going and watching the 1812 overture or something, right? Whereas this, I felt an emotional reality to it, but it's as if um, the world's most spiritually attuned and yet dullest librarian was telling me a very, very, very long story. And you're like, okay, mate, I get it. Personal topics, global topics, universal truths. I'm all over that. Give me 50 pages on each of those, and that's what you need. I'm certain this book doesn't need to be thousands of pages long, right? Like the telephone directory. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. But I, I again, saw the exact same uh, weakness that you're going to get in every single book of truth or otherwise. Um, Truth or lies, you know, both can be learned from anyway, which is that you cannot get yourself out of the way when channeling anything from outside of you. You can't. So what I saw was a man who was extremely yang, extremely logical, extremely stuck in his brain, who what he needed in that moment was for God to break down his mental ideas of God. And, and, he, and he was going to take some real like hitting him over the head over and over and over for him to get it. And so that's what this turned into. And and I think that's what I needed in the moment that I read it. I was extremely cerebral. If you had tried to have a debate with me about God when I was an evangelical Christian, I would not have gone into an emotional place nor an irrational place. I love doing it from a very logical place. Like I would like to go head to head with people on a cerebral level of like, I can make sense of this for you. And so I was still in that, in that space. I have since moved into a more feeling place into a place of being much more connected to my emotions, which were things that up to then I was quite afraid of. Um, And so rereading it now, I had that experience you had of like, okay, I'm actually resistant to this because what it's asking me to do is to get in my head about God and understand him on a logical level or her or them or us or it, which is, I agree with you, not possible. And not the point. Like, we don't need to explain God. We need to experience yeah. God. Yeah. Right? And so for me, that was like, that was a struggle again. And it made me again think of you because I thought, well, I know Andrew likes logic. And I know he likes science. And I know that he doesn't like all the touchy-feely stuff of like the Emily Brunt and like the vision and all that. Whereas I'm much more in that space. I love to feel. I love to move out of feeling. Um, and I thought, I wonder if he'll love this or if he'll struggle the way I'm struggling with like it being extremely c- cerebral. Yeah. I, and, and the reality is that I found the message very, very interesting. Um, and again, and it's nearly always my issue with um, faith-based literature, particularly faith-based literature that is designed to, you know, upend a, a, a belief system that, that's in place or to look at something from a different angle. Uh, and my issue of, often is that while these books have a, a genuine um, power to them uh, and they're dem- the, the writer is genuinely trying, genuinely trying to achieve something and it's pouring out of them, you can see it pouring out of them, yeah. what very few of them can do is write really well. And and that that gets in the way for me, you know. It, it, it's it, it's the fact that um, it's the fact that there's no real art to what they're doing. The art the the art of the assembly isn't good enough. And when you when you as I know you do, when you really enjoy words and how they're put together, yeah. to see them put together monotonously in these very boring, uh, you know, word sequences that kind of echo. Yeah, at the point where you're like, okay, I get that. I get the the power of the message. And it is quite powerful, actually, and it does really speak to me because it's much more in line with what I think than than say what we were reading last week. But the, because the delivery is is so kind of turgid and there's no real art to the delivery, that's where I struggle. Now, do you think that? See, I well, let me let me rephrase that. I think that there is a time and a place and a space for messages and truth to be delivered through art. 
And then there is also a need for them just to be directly spoken. Yeah. And for me, I like, I, I want both in my life. So I turn to fiction when I want good writing. And I turn to these types of books, more instructional books, when I want to be like struck with a rod iron. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's like, I, I do know what you mean. That's, yeah. that's the truth. Right. I remember and get yeah. about my business again and go back to, you know, falling in love with fantasy. Um, yeah. These for me, these types of books are anchors. And, and I actually find myself always um, by some grace of, of my nature and just how I was born. I, 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 um, I, I have this ability to see through and not mind the flaws in the writer. And it was funny last time, last week you mentioned about Rick Joyner and, yeah. and the research you'd done on him and what you'd learned about his personal life. And I sat there listening to you thinking, wow, I have read multiple books by Rick Joyner and I had no idea who he was. I never cared. I was never interested yeah. because for me, that wasn't significant. That wasn't relevant. What I, the messages I received from whatever message he felt he received was what was relevant to me. And yet for you as a journalist, that's like an enormous part of your understanding of something, right? Is, is the vessel with which it comes through, right? Absolutely right. Although it's very interesting that you say that because without us ever, without us having had this specific conversation last week, this week what I thought I would do is uh, so I read a conversation with God without actually looking up ah. Neil Donald Walsh. I thought I, I need to just come <laughs> to this gold and and see how it feels. Yeah. So I did that very deliberately. Funnily enough, after we got into that conversation, not funnily enough at all. It makes complete sense. After we talked about last week, I'm like, I've really got to just come to the words and see what it's like. And okay. and, and actually, what what I found is I I I don't disagree with your point. I, I think you make an extremely valid point. I think for me. Um, I, I, the, the lack of artifice and you know the, the lack of uh, technique is actually a very good thing when you're imparting a real message. Yeah, mm. I, if anything, I would say that where he has been poorly served, either by his fervour to deliver the message and get everything down on the page, or by the um, by the cooperation of those around him who form that stuff onto the pages, I just think it's wildly overwritten. It's too long. Yeah, so so I, I think I, I'm certain he – and I've only read the first book, but I'm certain he – every salient point from the first book can be made in a third to half of the space that he took. Well, it's funny that you say that because rereading it, when I read the introduction, I felt like, done. Yeah, exactly. But before he even time. starts the book. Beautiful piece. Yeah. That is like, that's it. That's the whole message of the book. And yet, if you see, you are not reading it from a place of being entrenched in the belief that he is breaking down. And oh, that's a good are, point. That's a good point. Then repetition becomes absolutely paramount to shifting worldview. Right. Because yeah. worldview is so, so heavy. And, you know, you can try and lift it up and throw it away in one foul swoop. It will not happen. Trust me, because you asked about the years following this book. I I read this book probably about 15 years ago. And I am yeah. still I am. I'm, I'm just I feel like I'm just in the last year starting to finally get an answer to my prayer, which was, can you please help me make this like my belief in here, not just yeah. up here. Yeah. Because it's so hard once you've been put into, because of course in the church, there is loads of repetition and the repetition has a function, right? We all know that repetition, there's a reason we go to school and that we learn the same shit every year in elementary school. I'm, I'm now homeschooling my kids and I'm like, wait a minute, we taught you all of this last year. Why is it in the curriculum again this year? And it's like, well, if you don't repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, it doesn't become second nature. And I think that that is probably the function in this. But I also think, again, like it it, it really just harkens to the vessel, like who is doing the writing and yeah. what does he need in that moment? Much more than what do you need in this moment? Like if you needed this book 
it will, I believe it will just come to you. Like that's sort of my belief in the beautiful perfection of the way this mystery works. Right. And, and it came to me and it was exactly what I needed. Now I sort of forced the issue and like went back to reread it. And I found myself doing that kind of like, whoa, like I, (laughs) I almost was like, like a little bit nervous because I felt like, um, I don't want to get back in my head. I just got out of it. And I don't want to get back in my head about trying to justify or be logical about God. Like, that's not where I want to be right now. So I actually ended up, I stopped reading after a while. After a while, I just thought this isn't, this is no longer serving me. I don't, I've, I've gotten out of it what I wanted, which was to sort of remember. And that's enough. But he, I, I'm sure you probably read, what is it called? I don't know if it's the intro or the acknowledgements at the very, very beginning. I, think I, I the, did, yeah. I remember those very clearly, actually. Yeah. And he, and he says in it, he says, um, he talks at the end about, um, I need now to say that I am, having read and reread the wisdom contained here, deeply embarrassed by my own life. And he goes on to say, I apologize to everybody for the slowness of my learning. Uh, Yet I am encouraged by God to grant myself forgiveness for my failings and not live in fear and guilt, but to always keep trying. And I feel like that's what this book is like. It's like a manifestation of that, right? Like he's slow to learn. He's got his own shit. He's working through. Sorry, here I am doing it publicly. And I hope you can all forgive me for that. But this (laughs) is why I'm a human being, right? This, this, by the way, touches upon one of the uh, the main sort of precepts of religion, which I really struggle with. So this this very intelligent man who's very much in connect it, it connected with himself, yeah, and has had almost like an epiphany of like, I've got to get all this down. That this is the way my relationship with a higher power, whatever it may be, is working. The fact that he feels it's incumbent upon himself to sort of ghostly apologize for his own life. I'm not down with that at all. I, I don't, I just cannot feel that because I just put my personal belief is that in whatever form God, a higher power, the universe exists, you know, that the, the, the need to kind of you know, like debase ourselves in front of our faith and apologize and go, I'm terribly sorry for being human. That feels completely like a, a human construct to me, not mm-hmm. a divine construct. And it, it you know, the, the truth is that whatever God, the higher power is, the thing that's created us, if it's created us, it's created us the way we are, warts and all, you know, embarrassment, stupidity, profanity, all as part of that glorious mix. So we don't have to fucking apologise for it to anybody, <laughs> is my view. Yeah, and, and, and if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. I, I love that you brought this up because, because it's so rife for discussion right now. Yes, particularly in the environment we currently live in. Right. right? I mean, Me Too, Times Up environment, where your past failings or your past mistakes or your past transgressions can absolutely dethrone, uh, dehumanize, and destroy your life at this point in our collective cultural history in the West. Yeah. And so... I mean, what do you what do you think about that in this environment? Like, do people do does a guy like him have to put that in his book? Because otherwise that book will be discontinued. I mean, Zeus's books have been discontinued right now. There are Dr. Zeus books that have been, you know, they've stopped printing them because he he made you know he used some of the idioms of the time. Yeah. Of the time, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of contextualization when it comes to things like that. So one of the things that um I thought worked really, really well is some time ago when uh Warner Brothers um collected a lot of the wartime um, uh, Warner Brothers cartoons like with Bugs Bunny and with Daffy Duck but when they're fighting the Nazis and stuff like that there's a whole bunch of stereotypes that come up in those things and in Tom and Jerry so they had like they had people with a contemporary voice whether that be Whoopi Goldberg or somebody else going look you, you know this is the what happens in these cartoons by the by it doesn't invalidate them it just means that of course you wouldn't do it now but you've got to look at look at it through a prism of the modern of the of the contemporary modern day so i think that's one thing and i think the other thing is that the problem with documentation of everything and we live in a world where everything is documented in real time i don't think these are the only issues the other the other big issue you've got is like societal shaming of young people among each other you know so footage from one young person to another irrespective of gender race religion creed whatever is you see some you 
you don't like and you take that footage and you use it to make yourself feel good and to torture them and make them feel bad. And that is tremendously unhealthy. And I think the entire instinct is completely off, however it's deployed and however you slice it. Uh, and and I think people have always been struggling against that. And unfortunately, the tools that we have in contemporary society allow you to like douse that in lighter fuel and set it on fire and accelerate it at a rate that we've never seen or experienced before. And make it global. Yeah, and make it global. Global in seconds. Yeah. In seconds. And, pe- and, and people are so quick to judge because ju- uh, judgmentality is such a, a whole topic I'd love to get into with you because, because again, it, it, that, that's founded on, on, on the precept of somehow my view is better than yours. Now, some things are, are kind of immortally and demonstrably true, right? You know, Nazism is a terrible thing, right? You know, and the, there are a bunch of it. There are so many extremes of human behaviour and goes to go. That is absolutely on any level wrong, you know. But judging other people for being worse for you on whatever whatever scale you want to to do in the moment, that is generally an instinct to be avoided. I think, um, I- and that's very simplistic, but it's it's absolutely true. Well, it's it's the probably the the main reason why I would still if somebody said to me today, um, would you still call yourself a Christian? I would say, yeah, of course I would, because a Christian is directly translated as a Christ follower, and he was a badass rebel saying, stop judging each other. That is not the purpose. That is not divine. That is not the good stuff. The good stuff is in you know love and acceptance and you know being being groovy. Like I always yeah. think of like Jesus was like a groovy dude. He was just yeah, like, hey, right let's all get along, right? Like, and I he, think he, that, he even looked like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think that that all boils back down to the point that you started with, which is this notion of, is there such a thing as right and wrong? And if there is, how do we navigate that where we don't just live in a world of judgment. And it really, it really dials into probably the one fundamental doctrinal issue that I had with conversations with God, which was that I noticed Neil was constantly trying to explain or make excuses for why there is evil in the world in a way that would sort of leave God blameless. Yeah. And I and I found myself go, you know, questioning it because I felt like You've established so clearly that God is the I am, that God is everything, that God is you, me, the ant, the clouds, the, the universe, the everything. And, and if that is what God is, then that means that God is all those things that we hate. And that, that is part of it, that it is not it is not outside of God because if God is everything, nothing is outside of God. If, if God is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end death and life, right? This is then, then we have a very limited idea of God. If God can only be the things that we deem good, that make us feel good, that make us feel happy, that make us feel joy, that all the things that make us feel pain and suffering, well, that's not God. That's an, a very small idea right that's a very tiny little idea in 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 my opinion yeah no i i i think i i think you're right well said well said about that i think i think ultimately you know the thing that neil donald walsh can't do and i think you you said this very clearly before he he's he's got this stuff pouring out of him but he can't divorce himself from who he actually is at the same time, which is which is what's happened with with both of the authors we've discussed thus far. And I think that that happens with all of us. And I think that's what happens when we have these um, very very you know righteous attitudes right now in, in in culture that are so powerfully judgmental, is that they have these ideas. You know, people have ideas of right and wrong, and they can't divorce themselves from them. I am guilty of the same thing. I mean, one of the things that I have done over the last year, for the first time in my life, um, is really sat down with my fear. Um, when I was young, I had this uh, attitude about fear, which was beautiful for the time, uh, which was, you know, fear is a construct. Fear is a delusion. And so I can eradicate fear from my life and I will. 
So anything I was afraid of, I would just face it. Like I, if I was afraid, I was afraid of the water. So I learned to surf. I learned to dive. I learned to scuba dive. Like I did all this stuff because I was like, fuck that shit. I'm not going to be afraid of anything. I'm never going to be afraid. I was afraid of, um, I'm trying to think of like, I, I just know I spent time intentionally overcoming fear. But what I have since learned is that overcoming fear is different than actually facing your fear and like making room for fear and being with fear. And as a, as a mother and as a grown woman in this particular time and era right now, I have incredible fear surrounding control and fascism. I just, I feel like all of the constructs are being laid in place that with the amount of technology and ability to survey and ability to control that we are in so much trouble. All it takes is one bad egg to get into power, which we have a lot of them already, you know, and, and we could be in a kind of hell we could never have imagined back when Hitler was on earth because he didn't have access to this kind of, these kinds of mechanisms for control. And so I have this like stewing terror, terror of this. Like I, it keeps me up at night. I worry about this. And most of my social activism is stuff that surrounds, you know, uh, fixing those issues of surveillance and giving too much power to technology and, and, and to corporations and governments. But sitting with that fear, it like rubs up against everything I believe, you know, which is that ultimately everything is as it should be. And that this is perfect because I have my inherent judgments of like, I want to be free. I don't want to be controlled. And that makes me uncomfortable. And that would just make me want to die. Like I would want, I would rather die than not be free. And so those judgments get into the place where I can really, really believe that if you don't understand how dangerous control can be, there's something wrong with you. You know, And I see it in myself. Like we all have that. And, and where the work is, where the work comes in is recognizing it in myself, you know, recognizing like, where are my fears? And I think that was really unconsciously what motivated me years ago to start writing the squicker wonkers. Yes. Uh, that was how we first met was talking about my children's story, but the squicker yeah. Of course. And it was it was an exploration of the shadow side, a side that I'd always been told was evil and I should stay away from it and I should be above it and I should, you know, not not grapple with the devil. And it was like I think through this sort of reshaping of theology that I was able to finally say I'm going to like look, but I'm going to look through characters because it's way too scary just to like look at myself directly. And I think that's what a lot of writers do, right? Is you create characters so that you can look at yourself through them. Absolutely. They're an objective lens through which you can reflect yourself. Yeah, exactly. And and then people, when they came out, were asking, which squicker wonker are you? Which squicker wonker are you? And I kept saying, well, I'm not really, I didn't write any of them to be me. Like none of them are me. And I would try to come up with a cute little word, like, oh, maybe I'm like Carrie the controlling, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> but through finally having the courage to really look my own fears in the eye, I realized, oh, of course, I should have known already. I'm the central character. I'm Papa the Proud. I am pulling the strings. I'm the puppet master. And the reason I'm Carrie the Controlling or Papa the Proud is because I'm so terrified of being controlled that I want to control everything else around me to make sure I'm never controlled. And it was like, oh my God. But really, I think it starts, all of this judgment culture starts when we judge ourselves. And that, yeah. you know, brings us full circle to your, your gripe with him, you know, verbally chastising himself in front of the world saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so terrible, which I understand why he would have the impulse to do as somebody in the public eye. Gosh, like I am so terrified of sounding in any way comfortable with myself because I feel yeah. like everyone will just want to tear you down if you are. Um, but, but it really is. It starts there with like self-chastisation, self-judgment that we are taught from such a young age, especially in the, you know, in religious cultures. And then you project that out into the world. Of course you will. 
Of course. I mean, that there is a very tricky middle ground between um, being a crazy, self-believing braggart and, and, and being a self-chastiser, you know, self-chastising, self-flagellating, self-hater, you know, and, the, the, you know, those are the two polar opposites, right? But you have to exist in the middle of that. You know, you've got to have a degree of self-confidence matched to the degree of self-knowing humility. And, you know, you shouldn't be the first in the room to beat yourself up. There were so many things that you touched upon there, but I would say that in, in the conversation, in the, in the commentary that you just made, I think the two things that really spoke to me, which we should examine further in future editions, are absolutely the concept of control versus what is actually happening in society. I think I think hitting upon the kind of these crazy out of control technological developments which are directly affecting our lives is fascinating because while often people talk in terms of the conspiracy of it and the government of it and the corporate evil of it all of which is true to varying degrees. I would say the real problem that we have here is a a bunch of unregulated individuals who have ushered in tremendous technological change over a very short space of time versus the rest of human history. And actually, all of our constructs of government haven't caught up with that. So you get these supremely powerful individuals who are controlling the message. And that's a very unusual space. It's not somebody being elected or finagling their way to power and sitting on top of a national machine. And I don't, and it's not a question of there's a big conspiracy out there, because in reality, when you analyze any kind of decision, you just realize how foolish and weak and idiotic human beings can actually be you know when you're in a corruptive environment you know when you've suddenly got all this power generally what 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 generally plots events are just the the stupid mistakes people make or the oversights they make it's not that they're sitting there like a marvel villain behind a long desk tenting their hands together like blowfeld from from james bond going right and now we do this that's not what mark zuckerberg is like that's not what gates is like that's not what these guys are like you know they went in trying to do one thing and they almost accidentally built this entire world machine around them and now they're set there going holy fuck you know, that we're controlling the whole world at this point. And I think that's a very, very interesting thing to examine. And I think I think that your whole relationship with fear to me is, uh, is fascinating because I think that's absolutely true, that fear isn't to be rejected, it's to be understood and, and, and embraced. And once you actually understand and embrace what it is that scares yeah. you, that allows you to navigate around it. And I, I, that's clearly that's clearly what you're doing now, you know. Yeah. And uh, but it's it's very easy to go. I'm just going to reject this and overcome it because yeah. at the end of the day, battles, combat don't actually work. Yeah, that that they don't yeah. build lasting solutions. Actually, what builds yeah. lasting solutions is cooperation and understanding, right? Yeah, with, with and, oneself as well as well as with society at large. And like you said, you know, the impulse for me is as somebody, you know, going back to where we began, as somebody who has always tended to exist just slightly outside of the circle, is to retreat. You know, when I see something that scares the living shit out of me, I go, I'm out, I'm out. You guys have your own problems. I'm just going to be, I'm going to have like a yurt and I'll be off grid and I'll be over here living my little you know, my little uh, Garden of Eden while you guys just all, you know, deal with whatever mess you're making. My first impulse was to be like, see, this is why I hate social media. This is why I hate technology. This is why I hate being a part of the group, right? Like being yeah. in the, the the colony. It's just gross. I don't want to be in it. I want to be on the outside. And then right away, because of six years of the current practice I have, I heard myself say that. And I was like, well, why don't we sit down with that? Down <laughs> in that reaction, what does that mean? Why? Why do you want out? And I was able to see so clearly: if I can't win, I don't want to play. Right. Okay. People aren't going to like me. They're not going to think I'm great, and I don't even want to play in your circle. I just want to <laughs> be outside of it. And it was so elementary, and it was so juvenile, and it was so pedantic, and yet. 
if I hadn't just taken a moment to really look at what was going on, why I had this impulse to retreat, I wouldn't have realized that really all it's about is sort of pride and fear yeah. and, you know, wanting to actually wanting to be loved yeah. as opposed to like, I don't care if y'all love me or not, yeah. you know, that bullshit. Like we do, we're humans, we're human creatures. And we do, we all want to be, whether we admit it or not on some level in the hive and we don't want to be left outside of the hive. We die. Yeah. You know? I, I, it, it's so true. And, and that's what everybody wants to carry around is that truth and that sense of self. And I think that that universal need to feel love and acceptance uh, and the way it colours everything we do in our lives and every reaction we have and being truthful with ourselves when we find ourselves being like steered into areas where actually we're, our, our brain is almost playing that emotional trick where you could have ended up feeling it but you took the time to understand it. I think, I think recognising our relationship with our own emotions and our own need for acceptance is a brilliant place to part this episode where we've been talking about Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Well, that's what we started talking about, but we've really been talking about so much more than just that. And uh, and again, it's about, as we were talking earlier in our conversation, to bring this full circle, it's about the journey. And the journey of the conversation is, is what fascinates me. Yeah. And on our next I'm biting my tongue right now because I'm like as with last time last time I I'm telling the listeners last time uh, I emailed Andrew afterwards and I was like oh my god I have so many more things I want to talk about now that came up in our conversation I know, I <laughs> At the end, yeah. I always, when I can feel you closing, I'm like, okay, don't say that other thing. <laughs> yeah. you know, right now, you just let it go and just like end yeah. it. <laughs> well, what, but what, what's what's uh, what's heartening about that is actually a lot of the things that we almost got into talking about last week, we got into talking about this week yeah. organically without forcing it. And I think, uh, you know, what if you, if you talk to the point, and I say this as a big talker, you talk to the point that your powder's completely dry. You know, it's not in, it's not entertaining, <laughs> it's not interesting in it within any conversation to just grind to a halt where you eventually fall asleep on each other right <laughs> not that I feel that there's any re- that there's not that I feel there's any chance of that happening with you and I but there might be chance of happening if somebody's sitting at home listening to this podcast and it goes, exactly. goes into hour three <laughs> so next week we're going to be talking about the subversely subversively feministic the red tent yeah so by and I'm very excited for this one. It really marks a kind of very obvious shift in the material that we're reading right now, which clearly indicates a major shift that was happening within me. Yeah, I can't wait to get into it. So if, if anybody wants to check that out in the uh, upcoming week, it's it's The Red Tent. And who's the author again, Brains? I, I need to damn it. I need to date. Yeah. And uh, I'm Andrew Sumner. This is Evangeline Brains Lily. This has been Evangeline Lily's Library of the Soul. And we'll see you next time around. You take care, mate. I'll see you soon. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan. And our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band. Denio. Hard Degree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner. <laughs>